Everybody, today is January 21st, 2015, 2016, January 2016, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Podcast. With us today is Mark Bevan. Mark is Professor of Physiology in the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University, and this is his second time. I don't know if you even remember, but we did a podcast with you once before, many years ago. 2007. Uh, Mark's work is on the cells and circuits of the basal ganglia with an emphasis on circuit changes that accompany Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease. Around the room, UTSA scientists, Suman Song. Hi. Gerard Bowden. Yes, right. Hello. And Matt Bonnet. Hello. And me, I am your host today, Charlie Wilson. So, uh, Mark, most of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease are indirectly caused by the loss of dopamine function in the basal ganglia, but the symptoms themselves are the result of abnormal activity in the other neurons, the ones that aren't dopaminergic, and the ones that don't die, or at least don't mostly die. And to get us started, could you just give us a little rundown on the changes in neuronal connections and firing patterns in the network as we know it now that's responsible for Parkinson's disease symptoms. Okay. So um, the classic model of basal ganglia dysfunction in Parkinson's disease suggests that the loss of dopamine in the striatum leads to an elevation of indirect pathway activity relative to direct pathway activity. And this leads to excessive inhibitory basal ganglia output uh, leading to reduced thalamocortical activity. The modern um, view of this is that in addition to uh, dysfunctional rate coding, there is also uh, an abnormal pattern of activity by the basal ganglia, such that uh, the neuron's firing becomes more rhythmic, um, more bursting, more correlated, and more coherent between uh, not only the structures within the basal ganglia, but also the associated uh, thalamocortical networks. And uh, yeah, my one of the one of the interesting things that we see in experimental models of Parkinson's disease is that immediately after the loss of dopamine neurons, uh, the the abnormal firing patterns and rates of activity are not observed. It actually takes several weeks for those to to manifest, uh, and then they are almost identical to the the abnormal um, patterns of firing rates of activity in Parkinson's disease patients. And so this is suggested to my lab and to several others that it's actually maladaptive plasticity of the corticobasal ganglia thalamocortical network that leads to uh, Parkinsonian brain activity. So I I wish I could draw a diagram, and you could draw a diagram. Uh, to to sort out the circuit just a little bit. So maybe you can do it in words. So the indirect and direct pathways arise in the striatum, mm-hmm. and they... Would yep. you just, <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so um, the classical direct pathway, the movement-promoting pathway, uh, goes from D1 expressing striatal projection neurons directly to the basal ganglia output nuclei, in the, which are the internal segment of the globus pallidus and the substantia nigra pars reticulata. The classic indirect pathway 
emanates from the D2 striatal projection neuron. Uh, these neurons innervate the, uh, the external globus pallidus, which in turn innervates the subthalamic nucleus, which in turn innervates the basal ganglia output neurons. And the sign of change of these pathways are uh, complementary, so the, uh, the direct pathway leads to inhibition of basal ganglia output, the indirect pathway leads to elevation of basal ganglia output. In addition, in the last uh, decade or so, it's been realized that there's a, an additional pathway, the so-called hyperdirect pathway, which goes from cortex to subthalamic nucleus to basal ganglia output nuclei. And like the indirect pathway, this is thought to be involved in, in movement suppression. So our normal way of thinking about these is just as how fast each cell is firing. So one cell is firing at twice the other, the direct pathway is going at twice the indirect pathway, then apparently we should go. And yeah. if the other is going faster, then we should stop or something like that. I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to make it sound trivial and silly, but... Okay, it sounds a little trippy. <laughs> but the, um, the, the way those work is by altering the firing rates of yep. other cells in, down the chain in a kind of feed-forward way until mm-hmm. you finally get to the cells that go to the thalamus. And if those cells are going fast, they're inhibitory, so it's supposed to step on the thalamus and make us move less, or whatever is happening in the cortex should basically happen less, because it's not just movement. And then if we relieve that, then we the cortex could somehow do more mm-hmm. of whatever it's doing. That's been the yep. basic idea. But it seems to me that in your work, you're seeing things that are more like actual changes in the circuit. Somebody makes more synapses, or they make less synapses. Yep. Then could you tell us about that? Because that's a, a whole new... Thing. It's not just they'll speed up and slow down. Yeah. So let me just say something in defense of the old model, the rate model first. So um, I agree it did seem simple, overly simplistic, but there was a nice paper by Anatole Kreitzer's lab that showed if you activate uh, D1 striatal projection neurons, you promote movement, you also alleviate or ameliorate Parkinsonian symptoms in Parkinsonian um, rodents. In contrast, if you activate D2 striatal projection neurons, you produce freezing of, of movement. So those are consistent with the, with the classic direct-indirect pathway rate coding model. Anatole, did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> but this, these findings are not consistent with the effects of, for example, deep brain stimulation, which is also highly therapeutic, and that leads to an elevation of basal ganglia output uh, and a regularization of of basal ganglia activity and that so that is not consistent so we think that firing pattern and firing rate changes are, are extremely important so one thing that w- the fact that it takes several weeks to see um, Parkinsonian brain activity in these acute lesion models of Parkinson's disease that we use implies that plasticity is an important component um, that drives abnormal network activity so we studied the subthalamic nucleus, probably the, the smallest and probably the most simple of the of the nuclei in the basal ganglia, uh, and we've seen several plasticities that we think represent uh, the engagement of intrinsic homeostatic plasticity mechanisms. So inhibitory inputs from the pallidum uh, increase, excitatory inputs from the cortex decrease. There are morphological changes. The dendrites, uh, the distal dendrites, um, are trimmed. 
the, the cells lose their dendritic spines, which are the main sites of cortical input. Uh, and in addition, the intrinsic excitability of SDN neurons goes down. So together, these would seem to appear, would seem to be useful because we know the SDN is, is hyperactive. Um, and so all these changes should, in fact, reduce the, the rate of activity. But in fact, what we think is that um, these, some of these, some aspects of these plasticity changes probably interrupt and produce very abnormal information processing um, and, in fact, actually promote pathological synchronous brain activity uh, in this and in connected brain nuclei. And that's, and that's really the focus of our research currently. So most of the dopamine makes its synapses in the striatum. Yep. But there are dopaminergic synapses in subthalamic nucleus and yep. bulbous pallidus and other places. And so uh, I think when you were here before, we were discussing where is the important place, where, what, uh, what nucleus, when it loses its dopamine, is causing the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And we were entertaining the idea that it might not be the striatum, that it yeah. might be the subthalamic nucleus or the yeah. bulbous pallidus. So how do we stand on that? I think I think that I, I I think that dopaminergic innovation of the subthalamic nucleus will help to decorrelate that nucleus. So losing that probably is a bad thing, but I think much worse is losing dopamine from the striatum. Uh, and what that leads to is hyperexcitability uh, and excessive firing of the D2 striatal projection neuron. This leads to disinhibition. Of, this leads to increased inhibition of the pallidum and therefore disinhibition and disinhibited cortical pattern. So basically back to 1989. I mean, the, the, yeah, all what kind of, of that what time kind of, that fell in between was yeah. uh, kind of a red herring, I guess? No, because I think that... I don't think it's unreasonable to expect to, uh, to accept the fact that dopamine loss and its predominant effects must be on the striatum. What I think is different now is that we start to have um, explanations for the aberrant firing pattern. And these are, in, these are produced by plasticities that follow the, the, the alteration in the balance of direct and indirect pathway activities. So I think previously we thought that direct-indirect pathway activity alone accounted for Parkinsonian uh, brain activity and motor dysfunction. What we think now is that imbalance of direct and indirect pathway trigger adaptive changes in the downstream basal ganglia and possibly even in cortex and thalamus and these in addition promote Parkinsonian brain activities so, so there's a nuance to it um, so yeah that's currently what I think so the circuit is rewiring itself a little bit and that's yes. what takes the time is for new synapses to form old synapses to go away so when you give L-dopa, you get a pretty fast response. Yeah. What? How does that Account. fit into that view? It's, yeah, I mean, so presumably that is most, well, it's interesting that, so L-dopa doesn't really work it according to the rate coding model. So one action of L-dopa could be on the striatum, and so restore the balance of direct and indirect pathway activities. And uh, that's, that's a possibility. But it seems like that might make things terribly bad, because, because, because it's then going to interact with all these compensated yes. yeah. I mean, and certainly, levodopa treatment is not perfect. 
But actually, if you record from, say, the subthalamic nucleus during levodopa treatment, it turns out that its hyperactivity isn't greatly corrected. They still stay relatively hyperactive, and in fact, dopamine's direct actions on the subthalamic nucleus are to increase its intrinsic rate of activity. What happens is the cells become decorrelated and less coherent with their input from cortex. So there is a pattern correction. There's not necessarily a rate correction. So yes, levodopa um, presumably has actions directly on striatum, but it's not... um, I don't think it fully accounts for its therapeutic actions, so they could well be extrastriatal basal ganglia um, where it's where it's having an important effect. Oh, that would be something. If it turned out that the dopamine depletion acted in the striatum, but the dopamine replacement therapy yeah. actually acts somewhere else. Yeah, because it, the, the, the alteration in, in basal ganglia output, you don't see a big reduction in basal ganglia output after giving L-dopa. You don't see a correct... You, you don't see a reduction in subthalamic activity after giving levodopa, but you do see big changes in synchrony and rhythm and coherence. Is it known? So what happens to dopamine receptors in the subthalamic nucleus after, you know, 6-OHDA treatment? You know, do you, do you have compensatory effects there? So now that you're losing dopamine, you know, working with this yeah. hypothesis that may potentially um, L-dopa is having its effects working in the STN, is there compensatory effects happening where maybe you have an upregulation of dopamine receptors, you know, D1 or D2, you know, subtypes within the STN to account for the fact that now it's receiving less dopamine? Maybe yep. there's a postsynaptic alteration. Is that is there any evidence that that may occur? Yes. So there's a there's a paper by Steve Steve Johnson that shows after dopamine depletion, the excitatory effect of dopamine on subthalamic neurons is greatly enhanced. So we don't know whether it's uh, upregulation or an increased expression of dopamine receptors or associated alterations in the signaling pathways. But there are several signaling pathways, complex signaling pathways associated with dopamine receptors in the subthalamic nucleus and all act to increase firing rate and to increase the irregularity of firing. And so probably are very important in decorrelating uh, subthalamic nucleus activity. So, yeah, L-dopa in the Parkinsonian brain will should have a, a pretty potent effect directly on subthalamus. So would you tell us how making the cells irregular would somehow decorrelate the subthalamic nucleus? So um, certainly one of the things that happens when um, you... Um, neuromodulate subthalamic neurons with dopamine, one of the things that happens is their firing rate goes up and often their their regularity goes down. And so we've done that experiment. We've delivered cortical input, for example, during those experiments. Um, and certainly patterning is, is now less efficacious. Often um, an autonomously, an in, a spontaneously generated action potential um, will coincide or occur just before a synaptic uh, input from cortex and so the cortical input gets vetoed and because these cells are all independent oscillators they might be at different points in their oscillatory cycle and therefore have different sensitivities to their cortical input and so that is how um, uh, I think that neuromodulation can help to decorrelate it from, for, for example from its cortical input and the mechanism of that irregularity is so the mecha, well, there are two things. So one, I think, is um, 
that the after hyperpolarization, it's uh, the, a component of the after hyperpolarization is calcium dependent, and what dopamine does is it uh, inhibits the CAV2 um, calcium channel, and this channel supplies the calcium that activates the um, uh, the uh, medium AHP or the after hyperpolarization, so-called small conductance calcium dependent potassium channel mediated conductance. And when that um, uh, conductance is reduced, the cells start to fire in, a, in, a, in an irregular way. One possibility is that it's just increased um, sodium channel activation uh, and reduced availability of sodium channels that's contributing to the irregularity, and then that then makes things like you know, noisiness and uh, stochastic nature of ion channels, that then um, increases the contribution of of those to to uh, firing irregularity. So. so it sounds like in this patterning mechanism, we somehow care whether the cells are across the nucleus, not just within the yeah. pattern of firing within the nucleus, but the pattern of firing across the nucleus. Uh, well, I guess I don't immediately get why that would. Well, if you um, well, you could imagine. You know the cortex sending multiple messages to the subthalamic nucleus, and if every neuron responds to um, a particular pattern of activity in a synchronous way, then the the uh, the information transfer by the nucleus must be must be massively reduced. So there's redundant redundancy is produced um, by this highly synchronous this highly synchronous activity. So now you don't have this rich encoding that the subthalamus seems to do under normal conditions. So most of the cells, you know, even the neighboring cells have, you know, really distinct patterns of activity during normal movement. Now imagine all the cells are firing in a highly synchronous way. Presumably the information content or the information processing that they're doing uh, is being greatly reduced. I think that's, it's almost like an informational lesion. Um, I mean, another possibility is that the highly synchronous activity um, is then, you know, presumably then transmitted downstream and that then goes back, goes back, and then has a subsequent impacts on different different nuclei in the network. And, you know, discrete synchrony is clearly very important during execution of complex tasks, but global synchrony is very bad. And in fact, global synchrony is often associated with sleep states and inability to respond to, to sensory input. So, um, yeah. So another area that you've been exploring with Parkinson's disease is effects on mitochondria and mitochondrial stress and oxidation. And yeah. This is an old theme in Parkinson's disease because there have been mitochondrial theories of Parkinson's disease for a long time. Yeah. Could you... Tell us kind of the state of the, well, the general state of the of the mitochondrial theory of Parkinson's disease and maybe the specifics. Yeah, so um, so uh, one idea coming from the Surmyer lab, for example, is that um, substantial agrodopamine neurons are subject to a basal level of mitochondrial oxidant stress. And using mitochondrial-specific redox um, sensors, that is clear. So the vulnerable dopamine neurons are um, uh, have this basal level of stress, and it seems to be that the the reason behind it is um, a 
particular type of calcium channel that these cells express, the so-called CAV1 uh, dihydropyridine-sensitive um, calcium channel, the CAV1.3 channel. And this channel is active at the resting membrane potential uh, that dopamine neurons have, uh, and it's cont- continuously uh, leading to calcium entry. Blockade of that channel alleviates mitochondrial oxidant stress uh, in dopamine neurons. It doesn't have it. And neighboring, for example, dopamine neurons in the ventral tegmental area, which are not vulnerable, um, these cells don't, don't have a, a strong calcium channel conductance, they don't have basal mitochondrial oxidant stress, and they don't die in the disease. We also know from epidemiological studies that this channel um, in, in patients that are medicated for problems with blood pressure, this channel seems, the blockade of this channel is, is protective, so there's about a 30 to 40% reduction in the incidence of Parkinson's disease in these patients. So why is mitochondrial, well, mitochondrial oxidant stress is, um, yeah, is central to uh, many of our ideas about the mechanisms underlying several neurodegenerative diseases. Of course, uh, deficits in ATP production are, are bad, but reactive oxygen species generation by mitochondria uh, are also, uh, there's almost like a positive feedback cycle, or negative feedback cycle in mitochondria that can actually damage uh, the electron transport chain uh, and ultimately uh, lead to the release of pro-apoptotic pro- um, factors and, and cell death in that way. And so uh, so that's the dopamine neurons. So it was a surprise to us to see in the subthalamic nucleus some similar mechanisms um, occurring. So what we see there is we also see after loss of dopamine, mitochondrial oxidant stress, um, there is a loss of intrinsic excitability that's mediated through the upregulation of a so-called ATP-dependent potassium channel conductance. And blockade of that um, alleviates uh, uh, the, the disruption of firing. So there we think uh, the disinhibition of the subthalamic nucleus in Parkinson's disease is leading to excessive activation of NMDA receptors, and that's the trigger for this mitochondrial oxidant stress pathway and, and a disruption in firing. So in, in subthalamic cells, I guess they have this safety valve, which is to reduce their intrinsic excitability, and they also have a, additional plasticities to reduce their excitatory synaptic input, which presumably allows the cell to protect itself from uh, apoptotic cell death through the release of um, apoptotic factors by the mitochondria. So in some of these mitochondrial theories of Parkinson's disease, which do not involve neurotoxins that kill the dopamine cells, but are... Yep. The spontaneously occurring the loss of dopamine cells. Some people say, well, the mitochondria have like a genetic defect yep. or something that makes them, and, and in that case, it makes them likely to die. But in that case, mitochondria everywhere would have that yes. defect. So I'm, I'm wondering, that, and then now we say, well, why do the dopamine cells die and nobody else does? But in that case, maybe the mitochondrial effects in real Parkinson's disease, the mitochondrial effects that you see in non dopamine cells would be even more pronounced than they are in the animal model where yeah, the yeah. only defect is the loss of dopamine yeah. cells. Is there a possibility for some interaction between those or even... Yeah, I think uh, that's true. I mean, so... Um, yeah, so if you have uh, basal mitochondrial dysfunction and you have these various triggers, then that would indeed um, 
be exacerbated and, and you would start to see these mechanisms. So, for, for example, we, we also work on, on, on models of Huntington's disease uh, and what we found there in the subthalamic nucleus is that in contrast to most other regions of the brain in, in these experimental models of Huntington's disease, we see a level of neurodegeneration in the subthalamic nucleus that's identical to that seen in the human disease. And we know um, that in common with some of the genetic forms of Parkinson's disease that there are issues with um, uh, mitochondrial um, regulation. So uh, the PGC1-alpha, which is a master transcriptional regulator, DRD1A, um, both the mitochondria in, in these diseases tend to um, be... Uh, less, uh, they tend to be fragmented, they have morphological and biochemical abnormalities, and so any additional basal stress makes the cells um, much more vulnerable and can lead to, to apoptotic cell death. So I think that's the case in the genetic models, in the genetic um, uh, familial cases of Parkinson's disease, mitochondria probably important for the idiopathic form, but when you have a an additional mitochondrial insult, that's probably why in most of those familial cases you actually get early onset forms of Parkinson's disease, and uh, yeah, it's just an additional toll on the dopamine cell, and the dopamine cell is selectively vulnerable. It would be interesting in those models to see what happens to subthalamic neurons, whether they would actually degenerate, and that could be, that could be quite interesting. I was wondering, one of the things I think is sort of most fascinating is, you know, it's, you say it takes, you know, six weeks after, you know... Three weeks. Three weeks, sorry. Yeah. Uh, to see, you know, these changes in the STN firing activity and all these plasticity events. And, you know, and Charlie sort of alluded to it earlier, you know, um, you know, there's a series of synaptic changes that presumably are happening. What's accounting for this delay? I'm just wondering, do you see any sort of other pre-symptomatic changes electrophysiological properties like have you sort of you know tracked it back in any way or yeah. you know that follows the progression um because ultimately you know when you end up you know seeing the effects you know behavioral effects you know 80 percent of the dopamine neurons are lost mm -hmm. you know there's probably been drastic things but it'd be interesting if we could sort of track the development of potentially pre-symptomatic yeah. electrophysiological electrophysiological changes that may you know be a precursor yeah. to um, the behavioral effects. Yeah, I think that's. I think that would be great. The problem with the the neurochemical models, though, is that there is there is clear behavioral dysfunction within a few hours of of dopamine depletion, but the brain activity pattern is not Parkinsonian. So you don't see rhythmic beta band activity in the corticobasal ganglia. Isn't that cortical. disturbing? But the whole idea. It is. It is a very. It is. It is. It is. It is a worry. But to be honest, we know that if you block dopamine receptors with antagonists, you produce something that looks pretty similar to Parkinsonism. So, I don't know. Actually, I, I think so. Some people have used that as an argument that there's a disconnect between, um, you know, these aberrant firing patterns and the the motor behavioral uh, abnormalities. Um, yeah, maybe. But, you know, we're, we're not trying to account for the effects of um, dopamine receptor antagonists. What we're trying to think about is what's happening in Parkinson's disease, which is a slowly progressing disease. My feeling is 
that um, most of these changes that are occurring are preventing the appearance of symptoms. So, as you say, you know, you need to lose a large number of dopamine neurons before you see, start to see motor abnormalities in humans. And I suspect if you didn't have these adaptive changes, that you would start to see abnormalities of 20, 30 percent dopamine neuron loss. And initially, these changes are probably very compensatory. Ultimately, we don't know when they become maladaptive, or even if they are maladaptive, or whether the plasticity just can't be strong enough to compensate for more excessive dopamine loss. We don't know that yet. I think that's um, it's going to be an interesting problem uh, to, to study. So then, ultimately, from a therapeutic standpoint, I mean, there's you know a lot of you know therapeutic benefits you know been demonstrated by DBS you know you know deep brain stimulation of the SDN, yeah. um, but just sort of in a theoretical way, if potentially you just sort of desynchronize the STN neurons, could that cure Parkinson's disease? Or was that would that by itself, you know, if you were talking about a final common pathway here, yep. everything else, you know, it, it's kind of hard to reverse all the other synaptic changes here. But if, you know, if this is sort of a major regulator, would that by itself, you know, could you cure Parkinson's in that way? Well, you can't cure Parkinson's, but you could more, you can affect, no. relatively effectively treat the symptoms. But interestingly, if you lesion the subthalamic nucleus, or you do deep brain stimulation and stimulate its output, and you you get a, a, a profound behavioral improvement in both cases. So I think there are multiple ways to improve motor function and disconnection or interruption of um, pathological am- activity emanating from the Parkinsonian basal ganglia is highly therapeutic. And and the signal that's replaced that that arises during deep brain stimulation you know maybe it's not such a sensible signal that's being produced maybe it's just a very noisy signal and that's less detrimental uh, to thalamocortical activity associated with movement so yeah i i don't know i think um i think the actual it would be interesting another really interesting experiment will be now we can um we could selectively produce um, beta band activity in control animals and look at the impact on motor function. When people have done that in humans, they've done it through, um, I think, transcranial stimulation. When they do that, they produce rigidity and akinesia. So I think that um, that that abnormal synchronous activity is profoundly debilitating. Yeah, and I think the arguments based on profound dopamine, de- acute dopamine depletion and the effects of dopamine receptor antagonists are really studying some another, another form of akinesia that is not Parkinson's disease. There's a huge contrast between the two diseases that you work on a lot, Huntington's yeah. disease and Parkinson's disease. Not, there's a contrast in symptoms and in mechanism, but I was thinking about the contrast in what we can do for you if you get one of these yeah. diseases. So in the in both cases, there's some cell loss. They're neurodegenerative. Maybe they even have some similarities in their mechanism of cell death. But in the one case, there's a treatment. And we know something about yeah. the firing patterns of neurons and how different things affect the firing patterns. In the other case, there's a ton of genetic knowledge. There's no treatment. And we know nothing about the firing patterns of neurons in humans uh, that have these diseases. Yeah. Is it um, is that just a coincidence, or is it the case that 
finding treatments actually is correlated with knowing something about that neuron spiral. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting correlation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Parkinson's disease is much simpler than, in terms of its impact on on brain activity, than Huntington's disease. I mean, in models, because we don't know much about the impact of Huntington's disease on brain activity. We do. I mean, there there have been several recordings, and in and in Huntington's disease models. So we know, for example, SDN neurons are hypoactive both at pre-symptomatic and symptomatic stages. So we think that's a pretty early problem. I actually think that the hypoactivity of subthalamic neurons in the circuit, this is a, this is a wild prediction, but the impact of that ultimately on cortex should be elevated activity. And that in itself may help to promote corticostriatal degeneration. So, and you know, and one of the phenotypes, one of the early phenotypes of Huntington's disease is a disinhibited... Uh, behavior, you know, aggression, um, you know, personality changes that occur really pretty early on, often before the motor symptoms and, and sort of frank corticostriatal degeneration. So I think SDN is, is important for that. But yeah, uh, you know, I recently presented, fairly recently presented some of this data showing the similar changes in intrinsic activity in the subthalamus in Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease. And uh, it was to a Huntington's disease conference. And on, I think clearly it's perplexing. But the common cellular molecular plasticity mechanisms that appear to be triggered in both those diseases, I think you have to view them in the context of the wider brain activity. So, you know, in Parkinson's disease, we lose dopamine as great dysfunction of the striatum. Huntington's disease is a very different disease. Uh, and, um, you know, it's essentially almost the opposite effect on on, um, on striatum as, as Parkinson's disease. So, so aberrant subthalamic activity, yes, it's important, but it's in the context of what's happening in, the, in its associated structures, I think is important too. My feeling for, um, you know, help thinking about designing therapies it seems to me that if you can do things that improve mitochondrial health, like, for example, improving the production or delivery of antioxidant molecules, improving the transcriptional regulation, uh, the autophagy, the transcriptional regulation of mitochondria, their autophagy uh, regulation, those should be beneficial, not just for Parkinson's and Huntington's disease, but probably also for most of the other neurodegenerative diseases as well. So I think in Parkinson's disease, you can go after abnormal brain activity. Um, that's one approach. Um, so, you know, after the cells have, lost, have died, you can, you can have sort of therapeutic, symptomatic approaches. But I think for all neurodegenerative diseases, I think improving the health of mitochondria can only be a good thing. That sounds like something we might get to talk to you about. In a few years, after <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much, Mark, and everybody else. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show.